Can we start? <coughs> Canterbury Tales and Boethius are in the same box. Oh, oh. One says Boethius and one says, oh, one's different. Okay, Boethius, I don't have this one. Are, are, are the pictures are different. <laughs> what would I do without you? Look at the pictures, they're different. <laughs> I got it. I thought they were the same. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Okay, how much is this? Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Could we, could we start? 16? <laughs> Mary Jane, Barbara, could we start? I need a librarian. We need a librarian back there. Just keep the change. And an accountant. <laughs> I can buy more cream water. That's right. Any prayer requests? <coughs> Are there any prayer requests? For the repose of the soul of Mary McGill. Yes. Jim McGill teaches at dead at UD University of Dallas. Mary McGill? Mary. She passed Jim away. Yeah. Yeah. His, the funeral's next Friday morning. Mary's... Uh, Sister Carol, lung cancer, and her brother, bladder cancer. Oh, dear. Okay. Uh, I pray for a lady that I bring communion to, Kathleen, that's facing, her body is shutting down, and she's very isolated, no family involved. Her kids have all isolated her. What's her name? Kathleen. Kathleen. How old is she? She's probably in her late 50s. Oh, so young. young. Well, wow. wow. Good for you that you're doing that. Francis. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Father Son, Son, Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass. We carry you within us, um, which means if our eyes are open that we're of your kingdom right now. This here and there and not here and not there and how the um, Eucharist changes the way we look at our world to be a part of your kingdom and make your kingdom real here. Strengthen us in our efforts to make your kingdom, not just you, everything present in everything we do. Dante speaks to that, gives us an image of all of it in the Paradiso. Help us to stay open to everything he offers it helps us to see your kingdom with all of its glory, surprise, richness, just great glory. Help us to carry that with us, take a joy in it in everything we do, bring it to others, so others will know of it through us. Be with Kathleen and her suffering. Most of all, um, help her to take a, um, gratitude in the help that she's being given um, let her ordeal take her closer to you, strengthen her in her faith. Um, know that it's a cross and you, um, that you have been there or with her there. Um, watch over her, please, and protect her where you can. Um, um, be with Mary, receive her into your kingdom, forgive her sins, wash them away. Um, 
If there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers speed her to see you, um, that she will finally experience the joy um, that's awaiting, hopefully, all of us. And Mary's, Mary's brother? Brother Stephen and her sister Carol. Mary's brother and sister Carol and Stephen, uh, both of them have cancer? Yeah. Um, be with them and with Mary um, and all of their loved ones. Um, help console them and let them be strengthened in their faith. Um, but like Kathleen, um, help them to find a strength in their suffering, to know that um, sometimes we can't escape it and that if we enter into it in faith, it um, can take us closer to you. Hard kind of purification. Heart purification. Um, help them to help them to grow in their love, in their faith, through their ordeal. And I ask a special blessing on all of us in the work that we're doing um, to um, to see what we're reading here in Dante. It's not just a story. It's giving our eyes about things in heaven that are hard to see. Help us to open our eyes to them. Let all that we see and imagine um, be a source of strength in our faith to, so that our eyes can see what a beauty, what a glory surrounds you and awaits us. That's our promise. Um, help us all to give ourselves to being with you. We offer these Barbara? prayers. Mary Jane's granddaughter. Sorry? Mary Jane's granddaughter. Oh, so what's her name? Maddie. Maddie. <coughs> Genuine thanksgiving from young Maddie. Um, what a great turn for her. Um, give her strength to carry through with this turn in her life. Um, sustain her. Um, let good help come to her. It'll make a difference in how she goes forward. If she falls again, <coughs> um, let it be a stay. I mean, help her to see that she can fall. It, um, falls will happen to pick herself up and never, however much she gets encouraged by the changes that she's making, if she falls or trips, um, to not despair, to, to know that it's a part of learning to be patient, to trust, um, be with her in all of that. We offer a thanksgiving too for Bev's um, recovery, and be with her in her recovery, um, help her to return to us here. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Can you take out the Easter poems? I put together a collection of Easter poems here. Um, by two poets. It was interesting to me when I was thinking about Easter poems. Both of them are English. You, you, you've read both of them before. We've read Hopkins and, um, and Herbert. It's interesting to me, George Herbert, you know, is a contemporary of Shakespeare's and Dunn's um, early 1600s. <clears throat> he, he was a part of the what we call today the metaphysical poets, Herbert and Dunn and others. Um, the, the greatest of them, I think, was Dunn, but Herbert was a great poet. He was an Anglican priest, 
Um, Dunn was Catholic and converted, became Anglican, as the part of the Reformation movement there in England. Um, first time I encountered him, I was just blown away by him. I was just, his poems were really beautiful. Um, I, and then I went on to Hopkins. To, to me, Hopkins is a much, much greater poet. But um, Herbert was a priest, and Hopkins, you know, was a Catholic priest. He began Anglican. His family was Anglican. But he was involved in that Tractarian reform movement in the middle of the 19th century, or the you know, 1850s, and that um, when when all of these people in England were becoming disillusioned by the laxness of the broad Protestant church, and all of them wanted to see a reform. They were all Protestants, all Anglicans, and they began this Tractarian movement, writing tracts on the church. And the more they looked into the history of the church, the more they were shocked at what they discovered, and a good number of them converted. <coughs> John Henry Newman, Newman was one of the most important. And out of that conversion came major works from Newman. The development of Christian doctrines is a major, major work. Um, Gerard Manny Hopkins um, was one of those. And he became a Catholic priest. And you, you should remember the wind hover. It's one of the poems I've read a number of times. It's one of its most important poems. I think I warned everybody, too, a week ago. Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote this poem called The Wreck of the Deutschland, which I think is one of the hardest, honestly, I'm not exaggerating, one of the hardest poems in the English language. We're going to do it together. No. <laughs> I hope it has pictures. <laughs> I said, I hope it has pictures. <laughs> One, through one-third of that poem, I expect to hear this voice behind me going, can we choose the next poem, Bob? <laughs> Notice he's looking at me. <laughs> anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it because it's an extraordinary. And you, you, what's to lose? You guys have done some really hard things yourselves by now anyway, so anyway. I did something to Bob that I have to go to confession for, so. <laughs> But it'll, it'll keep me with Bob forever. <laughs> okay, let's do <coughs> Easter Communion. Oh, the, the, the reason I went into that brief historical sketch, when I thought about that fact, it was interesting to me. I cannot find two priests in America who have written poems comparable to these. I mean, that says something. You know, it's really interesting. Both of these men were priests. They both are major figures in the poetic tradition, the lyric tradition. I cannot think of anyone approaching this kind of stature in America. I'm an American poet, a priest doing this kind of work. Easter Communion. <coughs> Pure fasted faces draw unto this feast. God comes all sweetness to your Lenten lips. You striped in secret with breathtaking whips. You remember they wore those hair claws in the Middle Ages as a penance to, um, to do a penance and to protect them against desires. You striped in secret with breathtaking whips. Those crooked, rough, scoured checkers may be pieced to crosses meant for Jesus. You whom the East with draught of thin and pursuant cold so nips Breathe Easter now, you surged fellowships, you Virgil, your vigil keepers with low flames, decreased. All these 
they're, they're beautiful descriptions. You know, we, sometimes we get so used to just giving up sweets or food or fasting from certain things or trying to abstain. At a more serious level, I think most of us during Lent try to take on spiritual sins, whatever they are. Complaining, being too critical, being more patient, I mean, whatever, whatever the spiritual. It's easy to name them, you know, but to find an image of them, the, like Dante does in the, in the Commedia, to find an image with draught of thin and pursuant cold so nips, breathe Easter now, you surged fellowships, you vigil keepers with low flames decreased. How many of us can describe our efforts in metaphorical terms that do justice to them? Like a low count, or you know, um, to, um, Isaiah would not, would not what, what's the, would not let a, a, a not quench. The, the candle going out, a, um, remember those images in Isaiah that wouldn't hurt a, a flame go out or these little, all these efforts like a candle going out or a suffering or a sorrow that, that we carry with us in Lent. Um, so like other Hopkins poems, he's just given us an octave, the opening lines, describing the thing itself. Remember, that's what he did in The Wind Hunter. There's an octave, that opening line. And now he's going to give us a sestet, a reflection on it. So the octave describes the conditions of fasting, the kind of suffering we go through. The sestet, the six lines, will be a reflection on all of that activity, that Lenten activity. God shall o'erbrim the measures you have spent with oil of gladness for sackcloth and frieze and every fretting shirt of punishment. Give murray threaded golden folds of ease, that peace that comes to us once we're done. Your scarce sheathed bones are weary of being bent. We're tired from the efforts we make. Lo, God shall strengthen all the feeble knees. We come out of Lent. Are we going to read Easter? Hmm? Are you going to read Easter? No. No, just, we just, did we only, did we do two last, on, we did? Two, on, did on, yeah. <coughs> Let's do Easter then, I forgot. <coughs> Easter. Break the box and shed the nard. Stop not now to count the cost. Hither bring pearl, opal, sard. Wreck not what the poor have lost. Upon Christ throw all away. Know ye, this is Easter day. Build his church and deck his shrine, empty though it be on earth. Ye have kept your choicest wine, let it flow for heavenly mirth. Pluck the harp and breathe a horn, know ye not, tis Easter morn. Gather gladness from the skies, take a lesson from the ground. Flowers do ope their heavenward eyes, and a springtime joy have found. Earth throws winter's robes away, decks herself for Easter day. Beauty now for ashes wear, perfumes for the garb of woe, chaplets for disheveled hair, dances for sad footsteps slow. Open wide your hearts that they let in the joy this Easter day. Seek God's house in happy throng, crowded let his table be. Mingle praises, prayer, and song, singing to the Trinity. Henceforth let your souls always make each morn an Easter day.
It was pretty. It's just, if you listen to the rhythms of the lines, the spirit and mood of the two poems are so very different. Okay. Um, here's my... <clears throat> just a couple of things to go over. Um, I, I'd like to try to spend most of the morning reading passages. Um, but a, a couple of things. This may not is apply as much here, but in the evening class, there's a couple of parishioners have raised questions of a skeptical nature about prophecy and how seriously we should take it. You know my own belief is that I think we should take it very, very seriously. But um, <coughs> Just as an opening, I want to remind everybody about the prophetic character of literature and, and try to make a... Um, to establish it more securely because I think we should. Remember that prophecy, as I've been defining it here is not telling the future. I don't, that's not what the prophets of the ancient world did. <clears throat> We're not talking about forms of divination <clears throat> or spiritualism. <clears throat> when people go to a spiritualist today for hand reading or fortune telling, all of those things in some ways undermine our free will. They're, um, they're schismatic and dangerous. They're out of accord with Christ's nature. Christ doesn't do anything like that. Um, prophecy, as I've been using to remember, is showing us things about ourselves that we don't want to see that are important for our salvation. God gave us prophecy to help us. The ultimate end of our life is supernatural. It's to be with God. Natural things can help us only so far. To get to heaven, we need supernatural help. It's a supernatural condition. The end of our natural knowledge is here on earth, sciences, business, you know, law, medicine, that's to help us here. Um, prophecy is intended to help us get beyond the natural world. So God offered it knowing it, it, it was necessary for our salvation. That's why I did it. That's, so the prophetic tradition has been with us from the beginning. So when the um, Old Testament prophets spoke to the chosen people, they weren't reading the future, they weren't telling them. They were reminding them of their sins, largely insane. Repent, turn back, recover God. The modern prophets, Christian, I mean, the, the line of prophecy ends with Christ. As the line of prophecy as we know it ends with Christ. Um, but we know, according to our faith, that each one of us, when we're baptized, is baptized into a calling. We are to be priests, prophets, kings. The call to prophecy didn't stop with Christ, it goes forward, but it goes forward into different ways because we know he's our God. So prophecy here um, is like the prophecy we find in the Old Testament, except with one respect different. Our prophecy comes out of a life in Christ. So whatever the Christian prophet is to bring to his work, it's going to be like the Old Testament prophets, but also different. Because for the Christian, the Catholic prophet, Christ the Messiah has come. For the Hebrews, he hasn't. 
So it's a very, very different way of seeing, and everything we're reading in the Divine Comedy helps us to see that. I, this is so important. I, I just, I'm going to get to it in a minute. This, this to me is a blow-away experience. It just, it's, to me it's extraordinary. So, the prophecy as we understand it is like the prophecy of the Old Testament, but it, but it differs in one fundamental way. The God that the Jews waited for has come. He did everything he could to, to answer our sins. Okay? He, he brought to fulfillment everything that the Old Testament talks about. So to prophesize out of that is different because the Messiah is here. It will radically color whatever the Catholic prophet brings to what he does. So just remember when you think, if, if somebody questions this, um, one of the things that I reminded everybody of on Monday night is, remember all, all the way through the Divine Comedy, Dante's been getting warnings of an exile. Something bad is going to happen. It hasn't <coughs> happened yet. This is, the, the book takes place in, I think it, it's set around 1301. Um, Dante's going to go into exile, I think, 1302. So all the prophecies will come true. All these people, from, from the earliest cantos in the Inferno, all these people keep, people keep warning in them something bad is going to happen. We know it. So he's got prophetic warnings through his whole trip. When he gets to the Paradiso, you know, he meets his great-great-grandfather, and his grandfather is actually going to give him his calling to be a prophet, to go back to the world and show the world something that it needs to hear. That's where we're going today. So this prophetic element is really important, but it's important to remember, too, um, the, the, the story takes place, I think, in around 1301, I can't remember, 1301 or 1302. Shortly afterwards, Dante's going to be sent in exile. I think it's in 1302 he goes into exile. When does he write the book? He writes the book in 1308 to 1321. So everything he writes about has already happened. That's why he can be so clear about prophetic events. Now, I'm saying that in a guarded sense because people who know that use it to debunk the book. They can say, well, so much prophecy. You know, he already knew it. Of course he can act like a prophet. You know, it's, it's already happened. Is everybody following? I'm not using prophecy in that sense. I'm using prophecy in another sense. Um, the source of the prophetic vision for Dante is Christ and the whole historical theological tradition behind him that led up to St. Thomas and everything that St. Thomas taught him about the church because the book, the Divine Comedy, is filled with that. What Dante's doing is giving us eyes to see more clearly the nature of our faith, number one. Number two, all the way through the book, he's, he's attempting to teach us things by a better, better use of reason because he knows that reason can be detrimental to the faith. That if people use reason the wrong way, it can undermine the faith. Look what Calvin did. Look what Luther did. Look what lots of Catholics do. Lots of Catholics bring a Manichaean, a, a darkened view to the faith. It's really inconsistent with the faith. Dante's trying to strengthen our faith as we go along, he's also helping us to develop a healthier use of our powers of reason because he knows 
reason can be so detrimental to our faith. It can undermine it. We can bring a darkened view to it and change it, make it bad, too legalistic. We've seen that. Remember the line that I've been quoting for the last couple of weeks? Ladies who have intelligence of love. There's a difference between the intellect as it's rooted in love and an intellect that's not. An intellect that's not rooted in love can get cynical, bitter, sarcastic, demeaning, <coughs> degrading, self-justifying, self-accusing, you know, accusatory. I mean, it can go wrong in a great variety of ways, okay? So by prophetic here, I'm, I'm meaning, as I said before, helping us to see things that we can't see on our own, and in a way that will enlarge our faith and make our powers of reason more healthy. So that reason and faith come together better than they do. Which is not a small thing. Remember, one of the most important <coughs> books, I believe, of our time was John Paul's Fide Ratio, Faith and Reason. One of his major um, epistles. Well, what I was going to say, just a comment. Um, when you explain that in that regard about Dante, it sounds very logical, but if somebody weren't explaining it and we knew nothing about it, and here comes this guy named Dante telling us all these things, we would think he was a prophet. I hope. You, you, well, I know, but, but he, you would think that he had seen something, not that he lived it and he was telling it. So I'm right. just saying it's a fine line. Yes. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just to reinforce what I said, yes, I couldn't agree more, David. One of the, just to reinforce the thing, if you're a modern and you, you approach a work skeptical to begin with, you're not open to it, and you read Dante and, and encounter all of these claims of having powers of prophecy, and then you look at what Dante's done, that he's writing about an event that took place in 1302, and he didn't start writing about it until 1308, you can immediate because lots of skeptics will. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, big. He knew it all. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, so he's putting on a putting on a front here. I mean, he's making it seem like it's prophetic when it's not. <clears throat> you know. Um, I mean, the the mind can do a lot to debunk, to take away. I just want to be clear that what I'm talking about is an enlargement of vision, a deepening and an enlargement of vision. And it, it's particularly important because of what's happening in the Paradiso. That's why I want to underscore this, because we're going to get to what I think is one of the major points of the Paradiso. Okay. So, every one of us has been called to be priests, prophets, and kings. Every one of us. How many of us take that seriously? Dante took it very seriously, and to show how seriously he took it, he took an epic, which <coughs> means, as all of you know, for him to take an epic meant he set that work in an epic tradition. It goes back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. He carries it forward explicitly because he takes Virgil as his guide. So he's explicitly linking his work with a pagan past and saying to us, it's important that we learn from it. He only gets to the top of purgatory because Virgil gets him there. So Dante's making it clear, we cannot disown the past. We have to learn from it. It can help us. So he's setting himself in that tradition, but he's also taken us to a point where Virgil himself couldn't take us. He's going to take us to Christ. So somebody is going to pick him up whose powers of reason are different from Virgil's. That's Beatrice. Because her powers of reason are rooted in divine love. What she's going to be doing is showing the logos in creation. 
that's where we've been going. That's what we've been doing. So, um, we've seen the scheme of um, the heavens. Remember that they're divided into thirds, so it's, a, it's a, another illustration of the way in which the Trinity informs everything that it does. Each of the earlier planets um, um, exemplify a deficiency in a virtue. It was a deficiency in fortitude, the moon, Mercury was a deficiency in justice, Venus was a deficiency in pleasure, a failure in pleasure. The sun is the first perfection of a virtue, it's prudence. St. Thomas is perfect in, his, in the way in which he used his mind. Um, and at each, at each level, we, we learn something about the nature of the virtue. Remember, in the level of the moon, we learned about the difference between absolute and conditional wills. That um, uh, if somebody, if, if a young couple, I gave the example of a young couple were in a car making love and the girl, the girl didn't want to do it, but she gave in, that would be a conditional um, will. And, and she, she didn't hold herself as strictly as she should have. If another woman were forced, rate, raped, forced to have sex when she didn't want to, but did not let her will consent, even in the act, that's an example. She's holding on to her will. There, she doesn't give into it. It's forced on her. So she maintains the absolute character of her will. At every level, Dante's been teaching us. Just, just, Justinian um, um, was a very important figure in the early church because he compiled all those um, treatises on law. He makes it clear that he was too given over to honor and his love of honor compromised his sense of justice, even though he went on to do these great things with regard to the law. Remember, I'm going to start when we look at the book. Remember, Cuniza had four husbands and two lovers and maybe even more. And so was given to her passions, but she's here in paradise. And I suggested that what's interesting as we go up is, in the first stages, we Dante encounters people who were deficient in virtues while they were on the earth, but now they are perfect in happiness. What was a deficiency before becomes the source of a glory. It was something they had to overcome. So what we see in heaven is this beauty. Each one of them is likened to a jewel, a different kind of jewel. So there's every reason for everybody in heaven to be happy. The cross, the suffering is gone. The mode of knowing in heaven is joy, gratitude, forgiveness. There's no guilt, there's no sorrow, there's no shame. Um, what was a source of shame and embarrassment is now a source of a glory. A sin gets transformed. So the thing, the thing that was the cause of that person's sin is like an increased light, an increased glory. Um, in the in the <coughs> just about the sun, we see the perfected virtues of, of temperance, or sorry, endurance. Um, was that kind of, yeah, endurance, justice, um, pleasure, prudence, or this would be temperance. This would be temperance, prudence. The same four natural virtues: um, endurance, justice temperance, prudence, those are the four natural virtues. 
the same four natural virtues are here, except they're perfected. So, for example, in the level of Mars, the endurance is perfected because what we get in Mars are warriors who died for their faith. They were so completely given to their love of God that they died for it. So that, that virtue is perfected. And we see the same thing here. When we get to the level of the fixed stars, what we see are the supernatural virtues perfected. And, and remember, the, these are all natural. These still relate us to the world. They orient us to the world. Supernatural virtues orient us to heaven because those are gifts from God. They represent supernatural gifts. And it's interesting to me that when we get to the premium or the fixed stars and the prima mobile, um, that the souls that that come to <coughs> Dante are souls perfected in faith, hope, and love. And when he gets there, the interdwelling, the indwelling between people, is more perfect. Um, we're, we're approaching the state of the mystic of this perfect union with God. The souls at that point are, are like mystics who enter into a mystic contemplation of God. So in, in some sense what he's showing is the a life of faith as it, as it moves th through the more active virtues, the natural virtues and supernatural virtues, towards the more contemplative and union with God. That's the journey because the ultimate end is to come into union with God. The beatific vision to see him, to be one with him. That's how the poem ends. Okay. Okay. Um, now here to me is the, the most important thing to take away from the Paradiso. Um, and I've said this to you guys um, <coughs> Um, I, um, I haven't taught the Divine Comedy in, I don't know, 10, 10 12 years. It's, it's been a while. And I feel like I know it really well because um, I've been teaching it for better part of my adult life. Um, yeah, here. Um, I've been teaching it most of my adult life, and I know it well. But every time I've taught it, year after year after year, throughout my life, I always come back and see new things. It's just, it's, it's been that way my whole life. It's been particularly true um, in terms of the classroom, because very often the, the questions that students will ask me, some I, I just didn't assume or anticipate, force me to answer something when I wasn't expecting to answer it, and it always takes me to new understanding. So it's just been, if, if any of you have been teachers or <coughs> work in a teaching capacity, it can be business or therapy, or you know, you're working with other people, you find that if you if you listen to people and hear their questions, a good can only come to you because you learn from them. They, um, <coughs> you become more aware of, of something than you would if you never handled those questions. Um, I've always told students that um, 
to, to buckle up because we, when we started the Paradiso, it would be difficult. It's the most intellectual, the most theological of all the books, without a, without a question. That's the way I've gone into it. But I never experienced what I did this time. So my gratitude to you is really great. I'm not kidding. I'm just once again grateful. I've said this to you. I'm truly grateful for being able to do this with you because I saw something this time I never saw before. Let me get to that because this to me is what's amazing about the Paradiso that I never saw before. I asked this question a couple of weeks ago. Um, why doesn't Christ greet Dante and Beatrice when they enter the heavens? It's his kingdom. Why, why, why is a Christ bearer taking Dante? We won't see Christ until the end. The very last canto, the very end. <clears throat> One of the last things we're going to see. Why doesn't Christ come to greet him there? Um, and I think my answer to that question, I mean, some of you may have other answers, but my answer to that question is because he won't be able to see him as he is until he sees him as the Word, the Logos. So this is not, this is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not that Christ, even though it is. I hope everybody's getting that. This is not just my Lord and Savior. This is the Logos, the Word, the one who made everything in creation, who's present everywhere in creation. If you go up the first half of the Paradiso, Beatrice keeps giving Dante explanations of the intelligibility of things, what they mean, the moon and Mercury, the, the, I, the, the eagle of justice, um, divine justice working through the world. Um, Dante keeps learning about the intelligibility and purpose of everything in the universe. This is not just an education. He's not in a schoolroom. He's in the heavens. This is Beatrice. She's showing him things Virgil could not. What she's showing him is beyond the range of human reason. It's still reason, right? She's using reason. She's explaining things. But it's a reason infused in divine love, divine faith. Because she, she sees God. So what she's doing with Dante is bringing the light of God and throwing that light on everything in creation. So she's showing him things Virgil cannot. So who's the source of all of that? The Word, Christ. So indirectly, she's revealing the presence of a Logos everywhere in creation. It's in things, it's, it's in time, it's unfolding, it's God at work in time. So this is not just my Lord and Savior. It is that. It's also the Word, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning. Wonderful Counselor. You know, you know those lines from Handel. God, I mean, they're stunning every time I hear them. Counselor, wonderful. What are, what are some of the other? Um, you know what I'm talking about, the, the Handel's Messiah. Messiah. Yeah. I just, the way those are shouted out, I mean, that's what Dante's encountering everywhere in the universe. So my answer to the question is, there's no way he can see him now. He will only be able to see him as he is. Remember the quote, I think it's from John. We, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Dante's like somebody coming out of a dark room when he leaves the earth. And he's entering, he's entering into supernatural realities. 
The end of them is Christ, the beginning and the end, and my end is my beginning. But he has to get ready to be there because he has to see the amplitude of everything that goes into the meaning of Christ in order for him to understand it. That's the first thing. The second thing in this, and this is a blow away, Dante's doing something that has ceased to be done since his work. This is not a small thing. Not a small thing. Those of you who have done Melville and Faulkner will appreciate it more. Here's the world. Dante calls this Egypt. <laughs> All he does over and over again, we're e leaving Egypt, <coughs> departing to go into the promised land. This is the world as we know it. So this is the world as Faulkner knows it, as Melville knows it. The other way that I can describe it, this is the world of respectability. Respectability. The defining qualities are temporal order, are respectability, and dignity. What's the defining quality of a Catholic? Should be holiness. It's not of this world. What Dante's doing is bringing to everything he does a sense of final ends. So he can critique the world in a way that somebody from the world cannot, because he's got divine perspectives. Right? Call to a Catholic is holiness, not respectability. It's not success and money and power and prestige. And those are temporal goods. Now take a look at this. Keep that in mind. The, the story, the divine kind, the journey of Dante. Remember, he was on his way. He was being damned. He was, wanted to get to heaven. He was damned. Mary, Beatrice, Lucia, go to get Virgil. Virgil comes in, sets him on this donkey. So he can see the danger to himself that he was, in fact, on his way to being damned, to learn to see hell, purgatory, and Beatrice is going to finish the journey by taking him up to heavens. So the two bookends of the Divine Comedy are hell and paradise. Both of them are final ends, right? We're not seeing... Jane Austen's dining room, Charles Dickens' dinner tables, right? We're not in a world of respectability. We're in a world of final ends. Jane Austen never gets there. Dickens never gets there, okay? In hell, we see people as they are, as they've chosen, after life. They're fixed forever. Whatever they wanted in the world, that's what they've got. That's that eternal now I've been talking about. Remember that guy running off in the field and waving the flag like he was the winner? It's what he wanted in life, that's what he's doing there. He's got it. It's like a moment that's frozen in time. It will go over and over and over and over. <laughs> that's what he's got. Heaven is a fixed state. Final ends. The, the blessed are with God. That'll go on forever. And, and you know that from that phrase that I wrote, once you're in the presence of God, every desire that you have will be answered and set on longing for more. Remember I read that line from from the Purgatorio when Beatrice looks at the griffin and Dante looks in her eyes and she's looking in and, and his description is, I saw every desire that I had was satisfied, satisfied and set on longing for more. How else could it be in God? If God is infinite, he's going to answer every desire we ever have and want more forever. <laughs> to me, it's 
It's a sort of breathtaking sort of description. So heaven's not a static condition. That's the way most people think of it. The dynamic is eternal bliss. That, and as souls continue to enter heaven, the joy, as you know, it's like the multiplication of the fish. It just increases exponentially. But that's the way we've been taught. I know, I know. I think it's also easier to think that way because most people just, so when they explain it, it's an easier thing to grasp. I mean, I think what we're doing in this class is getting off of surfaces, you know, just. So we've got two final conditions, right? The only one that's not is purgatory, and we know that at the end times, purgatory will disappear. It's only there to end times to help people who have, who have not attained a virtue, holiness in, in life, to do it as the condition for returning to God. But it's final ends, okay? Final ends. And once Dante's Commedia is written, we go to Shakespeare, Milton. Milton, actually Milton is with Dante. I mean, and he, that's interesting. He, he will go into final, he'll go into final thing. But if you look at the modern novel at the beginning of the 16th century, Don Quixote, um, Defoe, Robinson Crusoe, Jane Austen, Dickens, they're all in a respectable world. Right? That's our world. Here's the beauty of here's the beauty of the Paradiso. I'd suggested the last week that that what Dante does in the Paradiso, no author has ever done before. I challenge you to come up with a name. Name an author, a major writer, who, who doesn't deal with some conflict between good and evil. Jane Austen, Dickens, Dostoevsky, Trollope, Thackeray, James Joyce, Conrad, Henry James, you can go Faulkner, all of them. Who has ever written a novel, a story, that went on for 50 pages without dealing with the con showing something really nice? People would get bored. We, we hunger for suspense and conflict. We want to see what's going to happen next. As, you know, that's just so much a part of it. Dante gives us the whole canticle with no conflict. What he presents is a sustained joy and gratitude. So, Inferno's justice, the Purgatorio is justice answered with mercy, and the Paradiso is forgiveness. The debt has been paid. It's just absolutely crucial to see this. Justice. That's what they wanted, that's what they got. The debt actually is still there. That's all they wanted, they got it. Purgatory is people want justice, but they want to answer it. They want mercy, because they know it won't be answered without it. So justice is fulfilled with mercy. Mercy does not annul justice. It doesn't do away with it. That's a, a heresy from Calvin. You're supposed to go through the world and everything's okay. Catholics are asked to live for justice, to make justice, to make it real. But they're asked to bring to their efforts to do justice a mercy, a bloom. Once they do, the debt will be paid. That's purgatory. The souls will go on to the Paradiso. The debt has been paid. They live now in a state of forgiveness. There's nothing any longer to hold on to. I was giving the example. You send your, let's say you send your grandchild into timeout. Um, something in us should do that in a mercy. We don't excuse him because if we keep excusing him, <clears throat> now we are, we've talked, it's not going to get better. 
Um, but you bring a mercy to it. You try to bring something good so that that justice isn't too harsh. Sometimes it has, sometimes it has to be harsh. I mean, there are just some things you have to deal with harshly. But we're asked to bring a mercy to it. Forgiveness means forgiving it. It's over. Don't hold on to it. Once he gets up out of the chair, you go on. You don't hold on a grudge, not resentments. You just, you know. So the interesting thing is if you look at the Divine Comedy as a whole, it's saying, remember, Christ has come. This is real, because this is Easter. He's here. He's risen. That's our belief. Which means we're supposed to have justice, <coughs> mercy, forgiveness, all here. Now, the journey of purgatory, the Paradiso is not something that's going to take place in a future. It's here. How many of us, can, I said this last week, how many of us can bring a sustained joy to 24 hours of our life? I mean, I would think for most, because we have moments of joy. You know, you'll see a flower or see your spouse's eyes light up and you'll feel a joy. Ten minutes later, grumble, 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 or, you know, whatever it is, or this isn't right, or we thrive, we thrive on dark things, my contention. I think it's hard to sustain a joy. It's much easier to grumble or make difficulties greater. And here's the great paradox of our faith, because Dante's not a woolly-eyed romantic. He's just not a story. What Dante is saying is, justice is real. So is mercy. So is forgiveness. Christ is here. He's done it all. These are all supposed to be things we're living every day of our life, all day long. Calvin has absolutely simplified that, made it a black-white. We live in complexities and mysteries. If I can put it a little bit more strongly, if I take the whole of the Divine Comedy, as we move up the Paradiso, we're going to, Dante's going to have a, a number of glimpses of the cross. Twice you'll see um, images of Christ on a cross. Um, we are all called to a cross in this world. That's our Catholic faith. Go to a Protestant church and the corpus is generally off the cross. It's off the crucifixion. Go to a Catholic church, the corpus is always there. It's a reminder that we're all involved in that cross. What Dante is showing us is that justice, <coughs> mercy, and forgiveness should be a part of our life all day long, every day of our lives. And that means e even when we suffer crosses, somehow we're supposed to keep a joy with us. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. I, Dante's not showing us hell to look at a past, showing us purgatory to look forward and heaven forward yet. This is a part of Dante's journey. And remember, it's all oriented to this world. Everything that takes place here takes place in this world. Even when he enters the supernatural virtues, he's orienting, orienting them to our universe. He absolutely roots us in our natural order, always. So what he's doing is opening our faith. And, he's, and in heaven, he's, 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 he's doing it in a way that should help us live Make wonder more a part of our daily lives. The mysteries are here. The word is here. We know he's at work. There's a reason for joy, even in the midst of our sorrows. That's our faith. It's not a black-white. 
For a Calvin, it's been done. The Calvinists will say that it's been done. You're among the saved or you're among the damned. For Dante, it's a cross that continues forward, but with this extraordinary God who's present now. So the Paradiso for me is one of the most extraordinary works I've ever read, ever, ever read. The closest to it that I'm aware of is Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. You know that we did that, and you know for me the end of the Winter's Tale was to me one of the most stunning pieces, endings of all of literature. I think it's Shakespeare's greatest work. But that comes out of a painful, painful conflict, which, make, which makes the ending, in my mind, that much more heartfelt. Dante's giving us 30-some cantos of joy and peace and gratitude. So if I can get catechetical more directly for a moment, I, I think that's our faith, if I'm reading Dante correctly here. <clears throat> that, um, the Messiah isn't somebody still yet to come. He has come. He has answered it. We're asked to join him on a cross, take a joy in it. That's our faith, knowing some glory will come out of it. We live in a world in which we think we're so competent. I'll get this done, I'll get this done, I'll get this done, I'll get this done. We're partly also living in a mystery in which God is getting things done, and we're not always clear in what he's doing. But we're supposed to take a joy in it. That's our faith. That's our hope. So that, that for me, it sort of sums up the paradise. I want to go into readings now because I, I want to <clears throat> make this concrete. I don't want to make this. But any questions on that? Is that all clear? What, what were the, did you ever give us the, what the supernatural <laughs> virtues were? Faith, hope, and charity. What? Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, We're going to get to them right here, David. Okay. Because right. okay. Dante's, Dante's going to have to go through a catechetical exam. It's like <laughs> it's somebody preparing for the priesthood. He's got to give a definition of faith, hope, and charity. Okay. And, and the four natural, endurance, temperance. Justice. Endurance, justice. temperance, justice, and prudence. Those are the virtues we should, I've said this before, those are the virtues that we're supposed to be practicing on our own. Who in the world knows of them anymore? <clears throat> God. We're supposed to become more temperate. You know, control our appetites. We're supposed to endure. Remember what Paul says, endurance leads to hope. We're supposed to be just, to give people what they deserve, what, what's owed to them. That means even if they're bad, there's still something good to them. We still have to give them their due. And prudence means doing the right thing under the right circumstances, right time, right way. It's a sense of time and places, the, the right <coughs> thing to do under a certain set of circumstances. Those are the natural virtues. Those are the things I wish, I wish when we were younger, I mean, I certainly wish it had been more a part of my life, but now I'm beating our grandchildren over the head with them. You mean not in the Baltimore Catechism? I don't know. I didn't grow up on that. Didn't no, that's right. I remember oh, I came right. into the church. <clears throat> I don't know if I was saved from it. I mean, is that good or bad? Yeah, you were saved. saved. Right. <laughs> that's what I thought. So I thought. <laughs> I was thinking, if you were I'd, saved. With a, yeah. I've heard. They were all. And we had answers before we had questions. <laughs> basically, why are we, you know, why are we here? Serve God in this yeah. world and I thought David's comment. I, th I think it was you or 
months and months ago. Yeah, no, you came up once and she said it was really interesting. Something happened. I don't remember what was going on in the class, but you came out of it just with wonder and saying, you know, I grew up with the church telling me what to do and how to do, but not why to do it. Because he was blown over by, I don't remember what it was. I got that from him. Oh. And he said that the church teaches you what to do and what to think versus how to think and how to do. And why. And why. Right. That's what you really need, is the how-to. And the why. And the why. Otherwise, you're not thinking. It's just a rote. When you said that, I went, oh. uh, You know, as, uh, Roar has a, uh, he has called, uh, he's written his latest book, it's called The uh, Universal, Christ. Universal Christ. But I was thinking uh, that in any given moment, this whole thing is going on. It's like the eternal, you, you right. refer to it, the eternal now. Right. Because that's a mystical state of consciousness. Right. If you enter that world, you see the dimensions that are blocked to our perceptions. Right. Where now our hearts are not open. Right. Right. You know. So. Right. Th that's the wonder of seeing. That, uh, in fact, uh, I think it was Finley said that uh, the source of all sorrow or despair is the fact that we're, we're what's the word he uses, um, estranged from the spiritual life that's mm -hmm. really going on in us. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like yep. you know, and I, I like the eternal now is that all these things open up to us, uh, and they have, uh, but we only get glimpses every once yep. in a while. Yeah, what the, one of the reasons that I love Dante and love literature is that you can hear a statement like that as an idea, and mentally you can give your mind to it, but when you have a work of literature that flushes it out you know, scene after scene after scene after scene, so it, we relate to it the way we do things on our earth that are not ideas. We're not ideas. We're people, concrete human beings going, when we reduce them to an idea, that it reinforces a reductive tendency. When you're in a work of literature, that, that, what you're describing in that phrase is suddenly opened up and we experience it concretely so we can relate to it the same way we do to a setting or, you know, um, it's, and when you're a great artist, like Dante, for him to open up heaven, I mean, if those of you who've been reading it, I'm just, I'm, I'd be surprised if you can go through it just in, sh in wonder and awe to see his descriptions of heaven. They're just amazing. The beauty of them is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. It's all made real <coughs> to our senses. We're not, in our, we're not in our heads and ideas. We're in our bodies actually experiencing things concretely it's a it's a different thing but it's exactly what you're describing Tom exactly go to 444 I want to, I want to do this quickly remember Dante has come to the level of Venus and met Cuniza and here on 441 she comes to him and, and remember she comes to him eager to please. Um, she wants to give joyously. We talked about this, that at the level of temperance, Suz I thought Suzanne's example, if you remember, was really good. If you're a little child running through the waves and you love pleasure, and it's a good natural thing. The, the question is, do parents curb it and you know, take care of it? Because that natural pleasure, if it's, if it's not taken care of, can lead to excessive Mm -hmm. Addictions, pleasures, whatever. 441, 
<laughs> I don't know, would we describe her as being addicted? Four husbands and two lovers and how many of them? I told you the example of two women two years ago when we were doing it when I talked about, I think I was probably making some facetious remark about Cunisa and four, four husbands and however many lovers and too bad for her and I think I was facetiously smiled and two women looked at each other so to say, see what we're missing? <laughs> she says, both he and I were born from the same root, Cunisa was my name and I shine here for I was overcome by this star's light. <coughs> Gladly I myself forgive in me what caused my fate, it grieves me not at all which might seem strange indeed to earthly minds. One of the parishioners in the evening class said he thought that sounded awfully proudful. I think he's absolutely mistaken, I told him. Um, could, it, you know, if you're used to being told, don't boast of yourself or, you know. I'm sorry Debbie's not here because I was really looking forward to her being here. <coughs> if you remember a couple of weeks ago, she was, um, we were at the level of the pride, proudful, and, and she was, she, she takes this very seriously. She was reading it and trying to picture having to acknowledge <coughs> her sins with other penitents. And she was embarrassed at the thought that other people would know her sins. She's so ashamed of them. And she said, I, she carried that for a long time and then she went to confession once with this one priest. And I think his response was, God's already forgiven you, I think. Have you forgiven yourself? I can't remember, but I, I know that was an important confession for her um, because it turned it back on her. And one of the things I think we're meant to take from this path, she's not, Cunisa's not, there is no pride in heaven. That's not a problem. If we're, if we're seeing that, we're reading a darkness into this work that, where it doesn't belong. What, what Dante's showing us is that they're all in a state of forgiveness. There is no shame. There is no pride anymore. <coughs> the debt's been paid. It's behind them. Um, the law was fulfilled. Mercy was given. Now they exist in a state of forgiveness. They're enjoying gratitude. So when she says this, um, I think she means it literally. There's, she, she has no recollection of the sin, no, no shame, no guilt. I mean, she, to her, it's something that took place. But the feelings of shame or guilt or not there. And it raises, it raises for me this question. If what Dante is showing us is justice, mercy, forgiveness, and that's something we're supposed to live now, with all of the paradoxes and confusion that may leave us with, it's a serious question for me. We're asked, Christ asks us to forgive 70 times 7? Hmm. 7 times 7? 70 times 7? 70 times 7. 70 times 7. I'm going to put this out catechetical again. I feel like I, every once in a while. How many times do we forgive ourselves that way? I'm asking that really seriously right now. I love this line. Gladly I forgive my, me. How many of us forgive ourselves 70 times 7? And I'm going, to put it, I'm going to put this a little bit more darkly. If we don't, Isn't it because our pride is still too much with us? I'm saying that really truthfully. If we're not doing it, I think it's because <coughs> we're not getting past our own pride when forgiveness asks us to do that. 
And I'm going to push this even farther. If we don't forgive ourselves well, if we can't get our pride out of the way in doing that, how in the world can we expect to forgive somebody else? Remember, remember Plato, mind your own business. If we're called to, to give another his due, how can we do it if our own soul's not justly ordered? Whatever we will give them will carry some lack, some deficiency. If we're going to be just to another person, we've got to have a justly ordered soul. If we're going to love another person, we have a, a soul ordered in love. It's got to be rooted in God. If we're going to forgive somebody, can we do it if we've not forgiven ourselves? If, we've got, if, if we're not forgiving ourselves, is it because our pride is too much in the way? And if it is, will we really be able to forgive other people the way we should? How's that? No? You could disagree? Because what if you don't feel like, what if you don't think you deserve versus the pride getting in the way? What is that besides pride? That would be pride if you don't think you deserve to Forgiveness. forgive yourself. Explain it, Doug. Why would you say? Well, because if, if God forgives you, yeah. then who are you to argue with him? Right. Whether you deserve it or not, you've got it. Or, let me go at it differently, because you don't deserve it. it when you say you don't deserve it, I mean, I, I, I was agreeing with Suzanne. I'm not sure that I... I was agreeing with her, because isn't not deserving it a, a function of pride in this sense? Um, God, God I'm, this is tough. I take it in our pride we think that we don't get what we deserve. I'm better than this, I should get this. I, I should have gotten that job, you know, whatever it is, or I should have gotten that A, whatever it is, or um, he, he shouldn't have treated me that way. I, I deserve better. Those are all expressions of pride. Um, if, if you say, I can't forgive myself because I don't deserve it, isn't that making yourself the measure of deserving so indirectly an expression of pride because one of the things we get from Christ is he loved us when we didn't deserve us to show us that we take Plato's principle we're called to give another his due that's an expression of justice how can we do that if we don't order our own souls that's been a fundamental principle for us that means learning to order our own souls to become just temperate prudent you know. Christ comes in and he offers something not because we deserve it, but because he, he's offering a divine love to help us do something we can on our own. That is to recover heaven. So he's, he's showing us that um, we don't deserve something, but he loves us enough. And the understanding is, if we love each other enough, we become more like him, better than we were before. Not because of anything we do in our pride, but because of his love. Um, that's why humility is so important for us. Um, I think the danger, if you don't, if you don't forgive yourself because you don't think you deserve it, then you're missing what Christianity is all about. Because you don't go to confession to, um, because you think you deserve it. You go because you know you don't deserve it, and you want to confess your sins and hope you get better. We're always we're always trying to grow into a divine love. It, and it's always beyond us. And our understanding <coughs> is that after the fall, we've become less than we were, 
we're, we're fallen, we're wounded. And fortunate fall, Christ came into the world, Felix Coppe, fortunate fall. Um, to bring us back to God. Remember we read Canto 5 where it says God could have left us stand, he could have forgiven us, but both of those wouldn't have, he had to do it himself, he had to come and take on a cross and he asked <coughs> us to join him. That's very different from the rest of the world. So because Christ took on our nature, he glorified our human nature in a way we never could of our own. So he gave us something we didn't deserve and called us to a higher end. That's our call. And part of getting there means we forgive ourselves the way Christ did or we're not living him. And if we're doing that, we're forgiving others too. And by the way, I just mercy without justice is a disaster. It's an enabling. So it doesn't mean just overlooking things. That's the part of the difficulty here. In the Christian world, we're not asked to annul justice, to put it away. We're asked to fulfill it the way Christ did, but in mercy. And when we do, we're asked to forgive it. To not forgive it means we're holding on to resentments, we're holding on to grudges, we're still carrying them forward. So I tried to give the example of, you know, put my grandson in timeout. When our second, Jonathan's second, I'd put Louie in timeout, and Louie would go into timeout, and he would have this sulk on his face, and I would say to him, I don't want to, this is really funny, I don't want to see a sulk. And his face would lighten, <coughs> you know, just smile. Um, when Emily would do that, he'd never do it. <laughs> just a sulk. <laughs> you wouldn't do it, for, I mean, but, I mean, I'd done it enough with him, and, you know, cajoled with him, and, but I'm serious about it. I said, you can get out of timeout as soon as you make your heart okay. For me, it's just quieting your will and making your, you know. And I, I, I hope that's something of a spirit of mercy. I mean, just trying to help him ease the burden. But when the timeout is over, it's done. Forgiveness is there. It means do not come <coughs> forward. Grudges, resentments. It, um, so the, the catechetical part of this for me is, if this is, and I thought Tom's description a minute ago was absolutely perfect. Re remember, we've entered a world outside of time. So sequence as we know it is, <coughs> you know, I, I don't know how, how much we're supposed to look at this as a metaphor, this whole journey, but I, we're going to see this, if we ever get to it, we're going to see this at the end of the Paradiso because Dante's going to enter the Imperium, and when he enters the Imperium, one of the lines will be, here where... Um, where God, where God rules immediately, we're in God's presence now. Where God <coughs> rules immediately, the laws of time and space no longer apply. Where God rules immediately, the rules of time and space no longer apply. That's amazing because what it's saying is. In, in the time and space dimensions in heaven, it's not like us. We don't, not, there's no sequence. And there's no time as we know it. You're in an eternal now. So in heaven, if there's somebody who in our terms was a million miles away, that person would be as clear as if that person were right in front because the laws of time and space don't apply. They're not there. So in heaven, we're in a realm in which Dante's trying to use language to describe things that are 
absolutely beyond us. And in my mind, no poet has ever done what he's done. None. What he's done. It's just extraordinary what he's done. Well, don't you think he would have had to have experiences like that to, to rather have that? I, what words of I believe he did. I mean, he, it isn't made explicit, but when, when he taught, when he refers to Paul in the beginning, <coughs> Paul made this journey that he can't. That it, it's hard for me to believe that he could have done this if he hadn't had a mystical experience himself. Yeah. We don't know that, but. Okay, let's quick. 478. Remember in the level of the sun, Thomas introduced Dante to Solomon, who makes this long speech glorifying the body. And remember I compared him with Milton. Because Milton's, <coughs> Milton's treatment of Solomon is hateful. He hated Milton. Milton had a thousand wives, and I think Milton thought that was disgusting. I, no, Milton didn't have a thousand wives. Solomon had Solomon. a thousand wives, sorry. I read the passage from the Bible, didn't I, Scripture? Where God makes, I think I did that last week. I did, or didn't I? It's the passage from the Bible where, here. This is from the Bible. This, this is scriptural, okay? This is God speaking. It's in Kings 1, 1 Kings. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Give therefore an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? God said to him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked for riches for thyself, nor life of thine enemies, but have asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee, nor any, any will arise unto thee. Nobody before him, nobody after will match Solomon in wisdom. That's why Thomas goes to such length to make a distinction between Christ and Adam because Adam came before Solomon, made directly by God, should have been wiser, and Christ came after who was new things that no man will ever know. And St. Thomas explains that by saying God, Adam was made directly by God, <coughs> um, so was Christ, he was the son of God. So in this biblical scripture we're meant to understand all other men except Adam and Christ. So that Solomon was by far the wisest man that has ever lived. Um, and interestingly, in the section on Solomon, what, what Dante has Solomon do is answer a question that Dante has about the body. I, I don't want to look at it because I want to move forward, but what he says basically, it, it's on page 4, 460, 468 up through 473. Dante's question is, when, when our bodies returned, how will they survive the, the, the glow of these lights? Because the lights in heaven are so intense. And Solomon says that, um, that um, the, the glorified body uh, will only intensify the light. But there won't be any difficulty. Now remember, Dante's already <coughs> entered the sun. He was not burnt to a crisp. He entered the moon, bodies can't occupy. So we're already being made aware that this body that's part of our existence in the next world, once the resurrection takes place and our bodies return, 
or reduce this unheard of glory. It's, it's what we get a glimpse of in the Transfiguration. And he also makes clear, 473, one of the most important principles in the whole of the Commedia. Our brilliance is in ratio to our love, our ardor to our vision, and our vision to the degree of grace vouchsafed to us. The brilliance in our presence is in ratio to our love. Our love is ratio to our vision. So for Dante, St. Thomas, vision precedes love. We can't love what we don't know. As we see something, we learn to love it more. The ultimate end for us is seeing God's face. But seeing, knowledge, precedes love. The more we know of something, if, we know, if, we're, if the knowledge we have is good, the more we love it. We enter into a marriage thinking we know each other and love each other and discover lots of things that we wish we'd never discovered, I think. But the, but the more we learn to understand something, even if it's the sins and the troubles and burdens, and the more we learn to love them. Um, and once the body's returned, the glory of that love will be this indescribable effulgence, brightness. Um, 478, Dante comes into... Um, he meets his great-grandfather. Um, 478 is crucial. Another um, garland of lights appears to Dante, and one of the lights rushes out to greet Dante, top of 478. And as it coursed along the radio lines, this gem contained within its setting seemed like a fire behind an alabaster screen. The jewels in the color of heaven are, to me, remarkable. With like affection did Anchises' shade rush forth, if we may trust our greatest muse, when in Elysium he beheld his son. This is no accident. The illusion, the Tuolunanoa <coughs> simile, it's a comparison, right, a simile, an illusion, to Anchises is not accidental, because those of you who've done the Aeneid remember, Aeneid goes on, um, remember, Aeneas goes on, after Troy's destroyed, Aeneas knows he has to found another city. He has to go on. He keeps getting hints from the gods of where the city's going to be and what it's going to do. He keeps founding cities, and each time he founds a city, it turns out to be a failure. They're all dying cities. The city he's going to go on to found is going to be universal. It's going to be for all people, not just Trojans, not just Greeks. So the end of the Trojan War exploded our world because it pushed people beyond ethnic identities. No longer Italian, no longer Greek, you know, it's universal. Everybody's supposed to get along because we're all God's children. That city was going to be universal and eternal. It would never die out. When all other cities were either ethnic or dying. So failure after failure after failure after failure um, until finally he comes to Italy and he, he, certain omens take place that make it clear to him this is home. It's here that he will found Rome. When he's there, he goes to his father in the underworld, and Anchises gives him his calling. So for eight years, he's been failing. At every, I think this is incredible. <coughs> eight years he's been failing. Those of you who remember, when he comes to Dido in Carthage, there's this temple to Dido, 
And on the temple are these friezes that depict the Trojan War. And in lots of the scenes, there's this hero Aeneas. And Aeneas looks at this. He's watching these stories being told about the Trojan War. And, his own, and he's seeing a hero. Now imagine that man watching those when he's aware that for eight years he's done nothing but fail. The sense of irony that he would have looking back at those pictures. Another way of saying, you cannot live in the past, in past pictures. You're called to the present something harder. And he'll go on to found Rome. But it's in Rome that he goes to his father and he receives his calling. For the first time in all those years, he now understands firmly what he's to do. Okay? So, Cacioguida comes out, he's compared to Anchises, Aeneas's father, and it's here that he will get his calling. Now, Anchises will describe the, um, the history of Florence, um, and he, he will describe it as once this beautiful, great city. What page? Uh, well, I'm, right now it's state 484. I'm just going through this quickly, David. But okay. As glowing coals and a quick breath of air burst into flame, just so I saw that light grow brighter when it heard my loving words. And as his beauty grew before my eyes, so in a voice sweeter and more refined, so different from our modern Florentine, his light said from day, he goes on. He describes Florence um, and then comes to a point, 488, where what was once a beautiful, virgin, pristine Florence has now turned into one of the worst cities in the world, decadent, corrupt. You, you know that... Every, every plant, every sphere has some denunciation of Florence, the corruption, and the corruption of the church, the priests and the popes. And here it is, here, 488. How great I saw them, who, want, who once who now are ruined by their own pride, and how those balls of gold shone bright as Florence, flowered in great deeds. Such were the fathers of, of those who today prolong some vacant office in the church and grow fat, sitting in consistory. So he's describing the two families here, the Ghibellines and the Guelphs, that grew out of these attachments to the church and the um, emperor, killing each other. So over and over and over again, we're reminded of um, how bad the world has come. Now, one last thing, because I forgot to do this, and I, and I don't want to forget this, um, because he's going to get his, he's gonna get, um, his prophecy on 493, and, and then we're going to stop here, but I, I don't want to forget this. Um, you, those of you who've read the Iliad, you remember how, how important that moment was for Achilles when, um, mm -hmm. here, this is really important, Achilles reaches that moment, his best friend dies, Patroclus comes to him because Achilles won't go back into the war, Patroclus puts on his armor and he's killed. Achilles reaches that point where he is um, discouraged, downcast, because he feels himself implicated in Patroclus' death. Patroclus was his best friend. It's at that point that he goes to the company and he says, I let everybody down. My fault. I let everybody down. Agamemnon the king? The gods lied. He's passing it off onto somebody else. The only man in the Iliad who's truthful about his own weaknesses is Achilles. It's at that moment that he chooses to go back into the war. He has nothing to hide. He admits his own failure. No other, no other warrior in that book does that. 
When he does that, he returns to the war and nobody can stop him. Those of you who have been with me, you know my argument that I, I believe that's like the man that goes in front of AA and says, I'm an alcoholic. Once you admit your sins, what do you have to be afraid of? It, it's almost as if you're empowered to do things because so long as you think you're good and you're capable and successful, you, you don't understand that there's some things you'll be afraid of that will play out in your life. It's only when we admit. That's, you know, think about the importance of confession in our church, how important it is to admit our sins. So it's at that moment that Achilles enters the war and nobody can touch him. Something similar to that is happening with Dante in this sense. We know that in 1302 he's exiled. I go back to what I was saying about the prophetic aspect of this work, that, that Dante has a prophetic sight that's rare. Connect it with Achilles if, if you can for a second. If you were a person, let's say Dante, or just yourselves, who you are now, and you lost everything in your life, your home, your traditions, your past, the wealth, your honor as a soldier because you've been involved in those wars, because he had been as a Gulf. Saint, by the way, St. Francis, same thing. Went to the wars, came back, and said, enough. He, his father wanted to give him clothes because his father was wealthy. He put the clothes away, walked out of town naked. God, I love, so the image here I'm holding on, asking you to hold on to, nakedness. If you're a man and you've lost everything that you live for, it's gone. There's only two possibilities. You shoot yourself in despair, or you reach a point of saying or that something comes to you when you realize that's all I valued and it's gone. There's either nothing in life or I made that more important than it is. And if it is, now what? Because the man that goes out into the world then has nothing to be afraid of. What's he got to lose? Watch sports athletes. I remember Obama in the, um, in the, in the debates with, um, what's his name? The, the, McCain. No, the, the northern government. Romney. The, oh, Romney. Oh, Romney. Romney had him on the ropes. If you, I mean, I've, got, he, I've never seen Obama shaken. In that one section, he had Obama shaken. I mean, done. The, the, my, my reading of that, Romney didn't have the firmness of will to go at him the next time because when they met again, clearly Obama yeah. was coached. He went at Romney and the election, or the debates turned. If Romney had had a will, a firmer will, he could have put him away. Once you've lived for something and it's all taken away, what do you have to be afraid of? Your whole way of looking at the world will be different. You have nothing to lose. Yes. So if, if you're here in Egypt, remember, remember that I mean, the, when the Jews left for the Promised Land, a whole generation had to be spent in the desert. Why? Because a whole generation had to be right. whole generation had to be done away with because they were spoiled. They'd been slaves. They didn't know how to take responsibility for themselves. They all remember grumbling. They want to go back. <clears throat> a whole generation had to die 40 years in the desert to produce a generation strong enough to persevere. Yeah. That is, you have, you have to turn loose of the world. Wow. Because so until you don't, it's got a hold on you. So this prophetic element, you know, that remember that the vision that Dante's, or put it differently, in 1302 when Dante, when Dante was exiled, do you think he could have sat down and write this epic then? 
think about the wounds, the hurts, the injuries, the resentments are. So the, what he's giving us here, I'm arguing, I mean, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think I'm fairly safe, is the fruit that comes to, to him at once he gives up everything or once he's lost it. Because then it makes him reevaluate the whole world and it makes him see it entirely differently with completely different eyes. Page 493. This is Guida now giving Dante his calling. 492. Condigency which in no way extends beyond the pages of your world of matter is all depicted in the eternal sight. Dante wants to know how Cacciaguida can see all this. Because look, Cacciaguida is with God, right? There is no past or future for God. So he, this, by the way, this is getting to Boethius, but we're going to have to wait. There is no past or future. So Cacciaguida can see things that had already taken place and things that seem on their way to being taken place because things are unfolding in the future. But this is no more, this no more confers necessity than the movement of a boat downstream depend the eyes that mirror it. Now hold on to this. This is going to be, this, he, this is the passage I told you, he gets this from Boethius. You so often hear Christians say, everything's predetermined because God foreknows everything. Right? God, he lives in a now. He foreknows everything. Does foreknowledge lead inescapably to predestination? Is everything, this is Luther, or sorry, this is Calvin. Is the fact that you foreknow it means that it's predestined? Because what Dante's saying is, like somebody standing on a cliff watching a boat go through a river from here to here, the fact that you see it doesn't necessitate it. So even if you have some foreknowledge as you watch that boat proceed, see where it's going, doesn't mean it's <coughs> predetermined. So this is actually Cacciaguida's <coughs> way, but it's Cacciaguida's way of trying to answer Dante how he will know what's going to happen. Because it gets clearer and clearer that Dante is going to go into exile. But here he's given his calling, 493. You shall be forced to leave behind those things you love most dearly, and this is the first arrow, the bow of your exile will shoot. You will know how salty is the taste of others' bread, how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs of others' home. Try to picture Isaiah, um, who, dog named Isaiah, Zechariah, um, Elisha, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Take any of the prophets. Can you imagine them, any of them, living comfortably in a Jewish home in Judah or Israel or they were outcast. I mean, they were spit on, hated, reviled. So what Dante's describing here is the condition that we associate with prophecy. Okay. You will have known how salty is the taste of others' bread, how hard the road that takes you down and up the stairs. When a man loses everything and he can't turn to it anymore, he'll either shoot himself or it will begin to make him see spiritual realities of a kind that he never saw before. But what will weigh you down the most will be the despicable, senseless company whom you shall have to bear in that sad veil. Because he'll have to depend on other people. Yeah, he won't have a home. Some of those people are going to be people he'd probably rather not spend time with. 
And all ungrateful, all completely mad and vicious, they shall turn on you, but soon their cheeks, not yours, will have to blush from shame. Think about, this are the readings in the Old Testament after Easter. The disciples go into the temple. They're told not to do some things. They keep doing them. They're going to be in exile. They're going to be martyred. They're going to be pushed out of that world. It's from that perspective that the greatest visions, prophecies come. Because having lost the world, they learn to see things that they didn't before. Proud of their bestiality will show through their own deeds. It will be to your honor to have become a party of your own. Your first abode, your first refuge will be the courtesy of the great Lombard Lord. This will be one of the family, um, the Congrande family took him in. <coughs> Going over, 494. <coughs> now write this in your mind, but do not tell the world. And he said things concerning him incredible, even to those who see them all come true. Then he said, Son, you have my gloss in what was told you. Now you see the snares that hide behind a New Year's time. No envy towards your neighbor should you bear. Because remember, he's going to lose everything. Can't envy it now because he doesn't have it. That's one of the qualities of the commercial regime, you know, to envy what other people have that you don't. Um, no envy towards your neighbor should you bear, for you will have a future that endures far longer than their crime and punishment. When by his silence that blessed soul revealed that he had ceased weaving the woof across the warp that I had set in readiness, I said, as one who is in doubt and longs to have the guidance of a soul who sees the truth and knows of virtue and has love. Father, well do I see how time attacks spurring towards me to deal me such a blow as falls the hardness and the least prepared. Remember, now he's writing in this ret retrospect, but of some sense that he, foreboding sense that something was about to happen. So it's good that foresight lend me arms Thus should the place most dear to me be lost. My verse at least shall not lose me all others. His work at least won't be lost. Down through the world of endless bitterness and on the mountain from whose lovely crown I was raised upward by my lady's eyes. Then through the heavens rising from light to light I learned things that were they to be retold would leave a bitter taste in many mouths. Lots of people are going to resent what he says, what he's doing. Yet if I'm a timid friend of truth, I fear my name may not live on with those who will look back at these as the old days. The light that was resplendent in the treasure I had found there began to flash more light, just like a golden mirror. This, obviously, Kachigrit is taking pride. He's taking a joy in watching Dante accept his calling. That he's going to have to do this, not get bitter, not get angry, not get envious. And then replied, the conscience that is dark, this is it, and I'll just, this is the last phrase and we'll stop. The conscience that is dark with shame for his own deeds or for another's may well indeed feel harshness in your words. Nevertheless, do not, do not resort to lie. When, when you know that somebody's going to not like what you say, suck it up. <laughs> Don't let that keep you from saying what you have to. Um, um, do not resort to lies. Let what you write reveal all you have seen and let those men who itch scratch where it hurts. Though when your words are taken in at first they may taste bitter, but once well digested they will become a vital nutriment. Your cry of words will do as does the wind striking the hardest of the hard, highest peaks 
and this will be for honor, no small ground. It, that is, it's, it, it's going to be most difficult to receive by proud people. The, the taller peaks, the people are going to be prouder. They'll have a hard time hearing it. And so you have been shown here in these spheres down on the mount and in the pain-filled valley only those souls whose names are no defame, because the listener's mind will never trust or have faith in the kind of illustration based on the unfamiliar and obscure. All of this is going to be new. So the fact that it's unfamiliar and strange will make it easier for people to dismiss. His grandfather is saying, be on guard against all of this. You have a work to do. Have faith in it. Do it. This is your calling. So here, um, Dante, um, at the level of Mars, has received um, his calling. He will go up to the level of Jupiter and Saturn and um, finally into the fixed stars where he will meet with Adam. And what we realize is, and, and, and the early reformers of the church, remember he, in uh, below he talked with St. Um, Thomas and St. Bonaventure about the Franciscan order and the Dominican order. So these are later reforms. When he gets up here, he's gonna meet Benedict um, who was the founder of the Benedictine Order, and some other reformers, major reformers, but they're all back earlier in time. So as we put all that together, um, one of the reformers lived in the 5th century. Um, was it Benedictine who established the monasteries? I think so. Yeah. So we're going back to the 5th century. So from 13th, 12th century to 5th century reforms, from Kachiguiri, his grandfather, to Adam, we're going back to beginnings. Dante's going back to origins. When he gets to the level of the fixed stars, he will meet with Adam. He'll have questions for Adam. And it's then that he will go into the Imperium where he will see the beatific rose, the, the rose of the blessed. And that's what we'll look at next week. Dante's going back to origins. Um, it's extraordinary to watch. Extraordinary to watch. Any, any questions or... When you go back to origins, does that mean you're going back to uh, change? You're going back to the beginnings that you've lost. Go back to your roots? Yeah. Oh. To Christ, to Adam, to Christ. Oh, oh, okay. Alpha Omega. To see where you really came from. It's like only your history. The history has been only all along. It's now we're going back to the ultimate source of it all. Just Adam and, and Christ. A lot going on here. Sorry, what? It's always good. Yeah. It's always good, yes.